Uh, it is not the most interesting uh, sermon intro for me to recap the sermons of the week before, but the nature of what we're doing kind of requires it. Uh, we're going through this series where we've been talking about uh, the story of God and what he does and has been doing in the world in sort of five acts. And then we're just trying to connect the, the dots, trying to see what the big picture of Scripture is so that we might better place ourselves within that bigger story. And so um, we started with uh, Act 1 as creation. And we talked about how God created the world and he made it ordered and peaceful and beautiful and a place that was teeming with life and goodness. And also that he created humanity to partner with him in that work. Uh, the next week then was Act 2, the fall. And we talked about how humanity puts in a villainous turn. And that humanity begins to decide to go their own way and brings in death and chaos and disease and evil and all the things that make our world uh, not so pleasant to live in. Last week uh, was Act 3, and we talked about the story of Israel. And we covered the entire Hebrew Bible in about 25 minutes, right? And we tried to quickly talk about what the big arc to that story was. And primarily, it was this idea that God makes a decision to go small. He chooses a single family to be his representatives on earth. And from that family, he grows them into sort of a tribe and then grows them into a nation. And that nation eventually is settled into a land. They get a temple. They get a king. They get all of these things. And that through that, God hopes that he can be present with his people and that he can partner with his people. So we talked about presence and partnership as these two big themes that we see over and over, whether it's in Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph or later on with Moses and the people or with Joshua and the conquering of the land or with David or the other kings and then the fall in Babylon. In all of those things, we talked about this idea that God wanted to be present with his people and to partner with his people. And the temple kind of serves as that image of his presence with his people. Uh, there's one part of the Act 3 of Israel that we didn't talk much about last week. I uh, remember in the video today, it talked about Babylon, which is kind of where we ended. And then he talks about the prophets. And one of the important things to remember as this story goes on is that there is this hope for a Messiah. Uh, Messiah just means an anointed one. That's a fancy term that just means one whose head has been anointed with oil. Uh, it's very much a word that uh, is supposed to give us connotations of a king, a royal presence. And at the end of this third act, at the end of Israel's time before Jesus comes, we have this development uh, where the people of Israel are desiring this new leader, this king that we talked about in the video today. And this king is really important because there's a sense that that partnership between God and humanity that starts with Abraham, it's just not functioning right. Things are not working the way they're supposed to. They can look back to all of those bad kings that they had and how they failed. They can look to their own exile into Babylon. They can look at the um, fact that Rome at this point is lords over them. And there's all these things that just aren't jiving. They're just not working the way they're supposed to. And so this hope rises up amongst Israel that a leader will come that will fulfill all these promises that God has made. That there's a leader who's going to bless all the nations like Abraham was promised. A leader, 
who will connect the people to God the way Moses had promised they would be connected to God. A leader who will guide the people successfully, somewhat like David, but even better than David. And all of these hopes build up into this expectation of something that's going to happen. Uh, now, as we go through the story, I'm honestly not going to talk much about the narrative of Jesus. I know you're thinking, well, we talked about the big story. Shouldn't we talk about the story of Jesus? But I think it's pretty safe to say most of us know the big points of the story, right? We know Jesus' birth from at Christmas time, all this stuff about the nativity. We know about Jesus' teachings. We know about his example. We know that he died on a cross, and we know that he was raised from the dead. I don't mean to trivialize any of those things, but I want to spend our time in Scripture this morning looking at some passages that talk about the connection. Show us how Jesus moves forward this story that we've been telling over the last three weeks. And the first passage that I want to do that with is Mark 1. Uh, Mark does a great job of giving us a super succinct ex uh, explanation of what Jesus' ministry is about. After John, John the Baptist, was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Uh, many theologians will say this is the, uh, the best, most succinct example of the, the core of what Jesus taught. Repent for the kingdom is near. Now, I want to connect that a little bit with um, what we've already talked about in these lessons. Because uh, this really, in a lot of ways, uh, connects to the, the three acts that we've already been in. Uh, as a reminder, and I know you probably get tired of this reminder, kingdom is not a noun. Uh, it's not a verb you should understand primarily as a noun. You should understand it as a verb. The reign of God. The, uh, the will of God being done. When he says the kingdom is near, he means soon God's will is going to be enacted on earth. This is why we say your, uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a ask for God's kingdom or reign to take over our earth. And God is, what Jesus is saying is that God is putting things back into place. When the reign of God comes, it means that all those ways that God organized the world, that we then kicked down like a toddler kicking down Legos, as we said two weeks ago, God's going to start building that stuff back up. He's going to start putting it back in the right place. He's going to start making the world the way that it should be. And it means for us that we don't have to live in futility. There's this idea that if the kingdom is coming, it no longer will matter if you have an earthly king like David or Solomon or Hezekiah or Josiah or Manasseh or all those other kings who are putting your nation in the right place because ultimately God is going to be putting things in the right place. And so you don't have to live in futility. You don't have to be constantly frustrated that stuff's not working the way it's supposed to because God is intervening to put things where they should go. Um, and Jesus talks about how repentance is part of this. He says, repent or change your ways. Turn around. You guys and God have been doing this dance of Israel for a thousand years where he tries to bless you and he asks you to be obedient, but then you kind of do your own way and it kind of messes things up, so then he has to punish you, and before you know it, it all devolves. And he says, you know what? God is going to come and he is going to enact his will in a new, powerful way, 
And what you need to do is just repent. Stop doing that junk that you've been doing that's messed the whole thing up. Because God is about to move in a new and more powerful way. I also want to point out how um, this also brings in continuity and discontinuity between Jesus. And a lot of times theologians are going to fight about this, about how much Jesus connects or doesn't to the Hebrew Bible. Uh, It's important that we see both of them. Uh, This is classically seen when Jesus says things like, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, but I say to you, turn the other cheek, right? This is the way Jesus uh, says, you know, this teaching was good. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. is um, It's about limiting retaliatory violence, right? Uh, you do it so that if somebody uh, kills someone in your village, you don't kill 14 people in their village, right? You just kill one of them. The idea is to limit the violence. And Jesus goes, that's fine. and That worked for a period. But I want to go further because the heart of that is forgiveness, The heart of that is non-retaliation. And so Jesus moves it a little further. And that way we see he continues the tradition of Moses, but he expands it. And all of this is his way of saying that's the way God wants things to be ordered. Even by his teaching, Jesus is bringing in the reign of God. All right, let's look at another passage. Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. Who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, that's a very long and complicated passage that I could do a series of sermons on. But I want to just draw out a few of these themes that we've talked about. Hopefully it's resonating already with last week, right? What was Abraham promised? That all the nations will be blessed by you? And what is Paul saying? That one day every knee shall bow. You're right. There's this idea that Jesus is connecting to the entire world, that that blessing of Abraham is being poured out. And we talked a lot last week about partnership, that part of the reason Israel is created is to be an example to all of humanity about how God wants us to live. And what Paul is telling us is that Jesus is fulfills that purpose of Israel perfectly. That as much as Israel had successful and unsuccessful times being an example to the world around them, Jesus is the perfect example. Therefore, imitate this, that being in the very nature of God, right? This whole passage is about look to Jesus and copy his behaviors. See, uh, what happens here is that by Jesus being, uh, we talked about this human-divine partnership, and how it is always kind of a little wonky and it never quite works right, 
Jesus solves that problem by it being God made flesh. All right? That's very, I know it's very philosophical and sort of ethereal for us, but the idea is that Jesus can perfect the human divine partnership because in one person you have both things. You have the divine, you have the human in one individual. And it's a perfection of that partnership. Jesus now becomes the example of what it's supposed to look like. So all those years that Israel struggled to not be the example that God desired them to be, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Jesus finally does Israel's job the way it was meant to be done. And what that does is it provides us an example then of how to do that as well. That while we can look at David and see a very imperfect example of what God desired for us to be, we can look to Jesus and see a perfect example of what God desired for us to be. And so that partnership finally functions because in this mystical, amazing way, human and divine work happens in one person. And so there's no longer this struggle and discontinuity between the two of them. All right. Uh, last uh, passage I have for us. Oops, sorry. Matthew 27, 50 through 51a. When Jesus had cried out again, this is at his death, in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Uh, that can seem like a very simple passage, but it's really significant in these themes that we've talked about in the bigger story. Um, this is somewhat what the inside of the temple would have looked like. It was a big building, and there's a curtain at the end of it that separate the Holy of Holies from um, the, the inside of the temple. And the Holy of Holies is the place, this idea is that this is where God is really present. And there's this interesting sort of paradox where the temple throughout Israel's history was supposed to be a symbol of God's presence with his people but not too close, right? It's like, I'll live in your neighborhood, but let's put a plot of land between us, okay? There's this, uh, there's this, this, this curtain that separates, and you'll remember uh, from the story of Elizabeth and, and Zechariah having John the Baptist, that once a year someone would go into that holiest of holy places. We know from other literature that they would tie a rope around them in case they were just struck dead by the glory of God and they could drag their body out, right? And there is this separation. If you were a Gentile, you could only go so far in the temple complex before you were no longer welcome. And if you were a Jewish woman, you could only go so far before you were no longer welcome. And if you were a Jewish man but not a priest, you could only go so far before you were no longer welcome. And if you were a priest but not the high priest doing the duties behind the curtain, you could only come so far. And then even then, if you were that one guy, you could be in there for a few minutes once a year. And when Jesus dies, the scriptures tell us that instantaneously, this curtain, that division line, is destroyed. It is ripped in half, never to be put back in place. The significance, I think, is somewhat obvious. That presence that God promised in Israel, the presence that they experienced fully in the garden when he walked alongside Adam and Eve, is being restored. What does it look for God's will to happen on earth as it does in heaven? It's that he lives next to us, that there is no longer any separation. To the point that next week when we talk about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit fills us and indwells us. That separation that happened at the fall has now been fixed. 
has now been closed. And we now have God present in us and with us. And that fulfills that sort of presence motif that Israel always struggled with, with, their, um, with the tabernacle and with the temple that we talked about last week. All right. What I want you to see and what the big point of this week is, is that Jesus is the culmination of all of that work that God was doing in the people of Israel. All right, that choosing of Abraham, the developing of his family, the salvation of the people from Egypt, the developing of a nation, the taking of the land, the installation of the king and the temple, all of that stuff was not for no reason. It wasn't a failure. It was actually bringing the people of God to the point that they were ready for Jesus to finally show this human divine partnership what it could look like. And he does so in Jesus. And so you sh there's a through line from this, that the promises to bless all nations in Abraham becomes the accepting of the Gentiles by Jesus, right? That Moses' leading of his people of deliverance from their slavery in Egypt leads us to Jesus saving us from our slavery to sin. That David and his kingly work and his ability to lead and guide his people are a foretaste of how Jesus becomes the king par excellence. The king who truly cares for us and leads us the way that we need to be led. And it's very much uh, the case, really, that this is the, the culmination. This is the climax of the story. As much as we would like to put ourselves at the center, there's a sense that this five-act play has its peak in Act 4. And Act 5 is kind of, uh, it's kind of cleanup duty. Um, we've talked before about, uh, you know, historians will talk about World War II and how really the, the most important day of the war is the invasion of, of, of Normandy Beach, Right. The Americans coming into French soil, attacking the Nazis, saving Private Ryan, all that kind of stuff, right? That that is the moment when the war turns. Uh, there were still fighting. People still died after that. There was still difficulties. But the war was never going to be lost after that successful initiative by the American soldiers. Uh, there's a sense in Scripture that that's the way it works with Jesus. That the cross and the resurrection are the final victory against that serpent thing we saw in the video. And that from here on out, we're on cleanup duty. Okay, it doesn't feel that way often, right? Like we see the world and how terrible it can feel and how bad the world can be, and it doesn't feel that way. But ultimately, that Jesus shows us definitively how God is going to end this story. And it's very important not to forget resurrection in all of these things. The thing that is introduced in Act 2 with the fall and the thing that continues to, to cause Israel trouble is death. And Jesus says that, I am going to overcome that to be final proof that this story does not end with death and suffering. It ends with life. The same way that when God created the world, he made it for a place for life and vibrance and existence. And so God is going to fight back death. Uh, as he raises Jesus from the dead, as an example then for what he'll do for the rest of us. All right, that's all. Uh, it's very, I don't know, very high level today, I feel like. But I wanted to, um, every week we've been asking these three questions, and so I want to get back to them. Question one, who is or who are the main characters of this act? 
This week, the main character is Jesus. He is at the center of his own act. What is the world like? So remember, we talked about the world being really great in creation, really disgusting in the fall. And then last week, it kind of just vacillated based on the faithfulness of people. This week, a broken place is suddenly experiencing the breaking out of God's will. All of a sudden, the world just looks different. And this is why Jesus does miracles, not just because they're cool parlor tricks, but because it, when he lets deaf people hear and he lets blind people see and when he raises dead people from the dead, he is showing what God's will, what God's order, what God's intention from Act 1 looks like once it breaks back out in a post-Act 2 world. What role does humanity play? It's submitting to the teachings and example of Jesus. So ultimately, we've been asked to partner, and we've been really failing. And so God comes in and says, tell you what, let me show you definitively what this looks like. And that is the person and the character and the teachings of Jesus. All right. Um, obviously, next week, we go to Act 5, and I explain why we even have used this five-act play model and what we're talking about, because we ultimately, next week, will place ourselves in that bigger story. Um, that is all I have for you today. So let me know if you have questions. Yeah. So we've talked about this a little bit. Um, so you started that question with a statement or assumption. We know God has foreknowledge of all things, right? And that is a theological axiom that generally Christians do agree with if you read Genesis 1 through 11, I don't know if the author of Genesis 1 through 11 has that belief. Inasmuch as, uh, we talked about this last week, there's this statement that's really weird with Noah, and God regretted that he had created humanity. Foreknowledge makes regret impossible, right? Regret is... I made a decision, something worked out that I didn't see coming. Man, I wish I hadn't have done that, right? Um, oh, let me try to say this the best way I know how. I am not saying that I don't believe in God's you know, foreknowledge. However, um, God's foreknowledge is really, really important in certain sort of Western Greek based philosophical thought and we make a bigger deal out of it than Jewish thought would have made of it does that make sense okay but yeah I mean so what I'm saying is um, there was this Hellenistic belief that a perfect God would be all-knowing you know omniscient omnipresent uh, also unfeeling we talked about this a week or two ago that um, Greeks believed that God was emotionless because a God with emotion would be an imperfect God, right? Well, you read the Hebrew Bible, and God's filled with rage. I mean, the, the, the phrase, we don't, um, it gets translated out. The phrase is literally, God's nose grew red with anger. And it's a, it's a physiological thing that if you ever see a Middle Eastern man get really mad, you'll see that his nose will get red, right? This is just something that happens um, in certain sort of ethnicities. 
And they're using that very human description of God, that he was filled with rage to where his face's complexion was changing. A Greek person would never talk about God that way because if God had those emotions, he wouldn't be perfect. What's hard for us is that we are descendants of the intellectual heritage of those Greek people that makes us say, no, God has to be all of these things. And the writers of the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish literature that we have, doesn't have those same hang-ups. Another example is Moses and God are fighting for the people, right? And God says, I'm going to nuke them. And Moses goes, no, that's a bad idea. And God goes, oh, you're right, that's a bad idea. What is that? Like, right? Like, our understanding of God is having perfect knowledge. There's no way that conversation should happen. But the authors of, uh, you know, Moses and, and these, all these ancient Jewish authors talk about God in a way that does not have all those assumptions that he knows everything or that he's sort of using his foreknowledge. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 very much describes a God who is constantly reacting to new data that's coming his way. And I know that's really uncomfortable, and I don't know totally what to do with it, but I think it's at least important to let the story talk the way it does. And that story suggests that God has seen what they will do. And it creates theological problems for us that we have to live in the tension of. So this gets really high philosophy. For example, like free will. There is the idea that God has to provide free will to allow morality to exist. That there's certain rules to the universe that even God, like logical rules. Like, and you know, the way people talk about this is, can, can God make a round square? Right? Uh, can God make a round square? Or can God, yeah, can God make a rock so large that even he can't lift it, right? Whenever we get to omnipotence, that God can do anything, there's an, a question of are there certain logical incoherencies that even God cannot do because they're logical incoherencies? Does that make sense? I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, it's very philosophical, but it comes into this idea of when I say God could do anything, you know, I mean, another another more scriptural based is um, scripture says God cannot lie. If you believe God is um, all powerful, what does it mean for scripture to state there's something that he cannot do? Right. Like it's it makes us be careful of how much of that he he knows everything. He can do everything. How much of that is a presupposition and how much of that is actually what the text says. And I'm not helping probably at all, but I mean, these are just challenges to that, that discussion. Yeah, definitely our brains are structured within, it's really two layers to me because there's, there's the Eastern Western thing that you can take all the way back to like the Greeks versus, you know, like Chinese thinking, you know, like ancient thinking. But then another layer on top of that is European 17th century enlightenment, you know, scientific stuff that's on top of that. Because we're descendants of both of those, both the Greeks and the French of, you know, a certain era. And so, yes, we very much have trouble with paradoxical or things that are at, at tension. Where this really gets difficult for us is 
from a theological perspective, all discussion of God is necessarily metaphor, right? That God is so big and so amazing that I can never describe God as God is. I can only tell you what God's like, right? Yeah, because uh, when it is ultimately metaphor, there's always a yes and a no, right? So one of the basic claims of Scripture would be God is our Father, right? And that's true. But there's ways that that's not true, okay? I, I mean, at the very basis level, um, biologically, God is not my Father, okay? Andrew Borchers is that guy. I've got his DNA, right? So there's, like, it's a metaphor that we use, but there's limits to it. And... Um, they're also, you know, my fatherhood usually has a sort of exclusivity to it, right? You're a father to your boys. You're not a father to me, but God is a father to everyone. So how can he have that special relationship, but have it with everybody? You know, like there's always ways that any metaphor we use is a yes and a no. And so even when we, even declarative statements, like God is, you know, um, you know, God is all knowing. You know, like that's human words to try to cope with a divine reality that's beyond our comprehension. And so there's always tension about the yes and the no within that. Does that make sense? Are we? Yes. Well, and so, and let me, let me bring this back to sort of the lesson in that this is why God is so big into story versus description. So when human beings write theology books, what we tend to do is say, chapter one, God. Subsection A, the omniscience of God. Subsection B, the omnipresence of God. Subsection C, the immutability of God. Right? Like we, we do that and we try to exactly define what does God know or not know? Or, you know, is he always present? Is he not always? Like we try to like say this is what it looks like. When God wrote his theology book, he goes, let me tell you about a kid that was born in Bethlehem. And let me tell you about how he treated his friends. And let me tell you about how he ate meals. And let me tell you about how he, what, what he did when he met poor people. That's very frustrating to us because that, it purposefully defies the ability. It's interesting that there's very few sections in scripture that go, here, let me describe the nature of God. Instead, it's a story about what God does, and then we are supposed to take from it what that means. And so that's where a lot of this tension rises is, you know, God, tell us about where we came from and how you did it and how sin came into the world and why is there that tree? Like, we want all that explained. And he goes, let me tell you a story about a guy named Adam and a girl named Eve. And you're like, whoa, stop the story. Like, explain it explicitly. And he's like, no, no, no. What you need is the story. This is one of the biggest problems that Christians have, and the reason we need to talk about the big story of Scripture is we are constantly telling God we have the wrong kind of book. When we have, uh, when somebody dies who's close to us and we feel like it's unfair, we say, why does this work? And we want a theological treatise on why good people die. And God goes, oh, here's the book of Job. And you're like, I don't want a story. I want to understand it. And he goes, no, 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 just read the story. How, what you need is the story. You don't need it explained. You need the story. And that's very 
challenging to us, I think. I don't, don't know what we've done this morning, but um, uh, hopefully it's been beneficial in some way. Like I said, next week we will talk about the phase five, the final act. And we're going to talk about the church. We're going to talk about the book of Revelation a little bit. And we're going to talk about how we are being called to author the story in between. That God is actually asking us to help write the story between with our own lives. And that that is a very powerful call and a really great responsibility. All right, we got one more song and we'll be done.